In Esther chapter number 5 this evening as we continue on through the, the book of Esther. And uh, as we get into chapter number 5 we are um, again introduced to a cliffhanger. We all know what a, a cliffhanger is don't we? We've watched enough films and TV shows to read enough novels to know what a, uh, a cliffhanger is. You know something that leaves us in suspense before we get to the next part of the story. You know, I watched uh, Mission Impossible recently, the new movie, and uh, typical Mission Impossible thing. But you know the drill with Mission Impossible, don't you? Where the agent is given the, the mission, and the, the little uh, message comes, and this message will self-destruct. But the message is this, your mission, should you choose or decide to accept it. So there's a choice there, isn't there? And, you know, you know how it goes, because it wouldn't be much of a movie, would it? If they said, no, I don't want to do it. But they always accept it, don't they? Mission Impossible. You know, oxymoron, really, isn't it? Because it is a possible mission, because they always manage to do it. But um, they always accept it. Well, when we left Esther last time, she had truly been presented with her Mission Impossible, had she not? And she had the choice whether she wanted to accept it. And we um, looked into what she was faced with, really, how she had to go and speak to the king and what that meant, really. She, you know, she, she relayed this back to Mordecai, didn't she? And she said, if I go and speak to the king, you know what I'm doing there. I'm, I'm literally putting my life on the line. You can't just rock up to the king and demand an audience. But that was the mission. She was to make an appeal to the king. Um, this is, again, you have to understand that, that not only was she going to appeal to the king, but at this point she's going to go and she's going to appeal to the king based on her ethnicity. That she's going to go to the king and say, you know, you can't do this to the Jews, they're my people. Because she's been keeping it from him, from all this point. So not only does she have to go and, and plead for the Jewish people, but she also has to say, I've got something I didn't tell you. It wasn't part of the package. I'm a Jew. So, you know, there's a lot going on in this. And then she must, not only that, not only does she put her life on the line in this mission impossible, but she has to then convince the king to somehow reverse the irreversible. Remember the law of the Medes and the Persians. So, you know, the tasks are mounting up for Esther. And, of course, Haman's involved in this, you know, risen to a position of power, prime minister of the land, really. So she's got everything against her. And, of course, we know when we looked at how the king wasn't particularly up to date in women's rights and how he treated women. So there's a lot going on. The task is monumental. Some would say mission impossible. And if we remember that Esther, uh, magnificently really, you know, just speaking to us in terms of the situations we walk into, she said to Mordecai, right, we'll do it, but let's go to the Lord in prayer and fasting for three days before we ever enter into it. So chapter four left us with a bit of suspense, a little bit of a cliffhanger. You know, will Esther survive? How will she go about what she's going about? What will her tactics, what will her strategy be as she puts her life on the line for her people? So let's get into chapter number five. We're going to pick up, you know, we're not going to leave it hanging too long. We're going to look in chapter five and see how she gets on. And we'll read through this as we go tonight. So first thing I want to say is as we look at the narrative we see there's an approach. 
Esther's got to go before the king, doesn't she? Look at verse 1, chapter 5. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house and the king sat upon the royal throne in the royal house over against the the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. Now what has she done? She has put on her best. She is like, you know, I have no doubt just because of the position she rose to. You remember the the beauty pageant? I mean, she was a beautiful woman. There's no doubt about it. But she is looking a million dollars here. You know, you just imagine the scene. Like she's, you know, innocently trying to get the king's attention. There's no innocence here. It's a strategy. Strategy. And the king, of course, we know what he's like. He's taken with a beautiful woman. And he basically says to Esther, in verse number, number two, or sorry, says, She obtained favor in his sight. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. So here, here she is, and this is the custom of the time. You want to go before the king. This was the, the, the signal that you would be okay to approach the king. If the scepter was put out to you, the golden scepter of the king was put out, then you knew you had favor with the king and you could go before him without fear of your life. And, you know, I talked about this this morning in Ephesians. But God, you see, you can't approach God by yourself. You need God's permission to approach him. And the but God of Ephesians is the gospel of grace. Where God puts out the golden scepter and says, come. Beautiful. The Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful gospel imagery. So here she is in her royal robes. Probably the scariest moment in her life. She knows what she's going to do here. And the king lowers the scepter. She's able to come. And the first hurdle in all of this has been uh, overcome, as it were. The king has been gracious to her. And now she can come boldly before the throne. Beautiful gospel picture. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is that not what Esther is doing? She's looking for mercy and grace and help in time of need. This is a picture of the gospel. I wonder... Church, when the two that walked the road of Emmaus and the Lord Jesus Christ opened the scriptures from Genesis on and showed them all the things pertaining to him, I wonder did he stop here and talk to them like I'm talking to you tonight about the golden scepter and the ability to come before the throne of grace. And for Jesus to say to those disciples, possibly, I'm the one that enables you to come. It's beautiful. This is the gospel. This is God's promise to whosoever, John 3, 16. And that's God's promise to sinners. You're here tonight. You're not saved. Here's God's promise to you. Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him and should not perish but have everlasting life. 
These are the things that God promises the sinner. But what God promises the saint is not simply whosoever, but whatsoever. What is the whatsoever? John 14, 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Mercy and grace. Mercy, whosoever. Grace, whatsoever. That if we ask according to the will of God in and through him, it is guaranteed, delivered from the king himself. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know other religions don't have that? They don't have that assurance that when they come before the throne of the Almighty, that the scepter will be lowered. If you practice Islam, Islamic practices, you're a Muslim today. You speak to them, you witness to them at any time. And you can, you can talk to them and ask them this. Do you have assurance that when you stand before God, Allah, that you'll be okay? And the answer, the honest answer from the Muslim is simply, I hope so. I hope that I've been a good Muslim. I hope that I've done what God has wanted me to do and that when I stand before him, he's in a good enough mood that he's going to lower that scepter that I might come. You look at any of the world religions, it's the same thing. But Christianity is different. It's different. Because once we have Christ, once we've accepted the transaction, his life for ours, here's the answer. The golden scepter is always lowered for you to come anytime you want. Not based on what you've done, but based on what Christ has done on Calvary's cross. It's the only religion in the world like it. What assurance we have. What privilege we have to come before that throne boldly. But how often do we forgo that privilege and not even bother going near the throne, never mind before it? If you think about what we have it always baffles me why we and I say we struggle in this area the most coming before the throne of grace because we do all of us so you know I can see by your faces and I can know by my thoughts that we don't we don't come before the throne like we should you know, you cut back to Esther's time. You cut back to uh, this scenario where, you know, it meant life or death. And actually, um, if this, the, the king lowered the scepter, held out the scepter so that uh, the person could draw near, if that person was guaranteed that there was something written in the law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that particularly for them, that every time they approached the king, no matter what time of day it was, no matter what, how the king was feeling, that he had to put down that scepter and give them passage, I have no doubt that they would use that to the fullest. But yet we have the Lord of all creation. It says, my son came, Calvary's cross, that the way, the scepter may be down, that you might come before me boldly to ask for mercy and help and grace. But yet we just 
plod on, doing the same things the same way, rather than going to God. We simply don't know what we have. You know, we were talking today with um, uh, Rachel and, and Danny, who had them over for lunch, and we were just talking about getting old. And talking about, you know, how things are different for kids now. And, you know, as you get old, this is your rite of passage to be able to talk about how you had it much harder, much different than the kids that went before. But when it comes to us and the Lord, we don't have it hard. We're privileged, beyond privileged, to come before him. I wonder, are you taking advantage of that privilege? Are you coming before the Lord? Here Esther has the courage. She's accepted mission impossible. And this is the first stage. She has to approach. And now she's approached. She's found favor with the king. The scepter has been reached out towards us. And now she can move on to the second stage of her plan. Look at verse 3. And we'll see there's an appeal. Verse 3 of chapter 5 of Esther. Then said the king unto her, What will thy queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given thee to half of the kingdom. So this little, little phrase is basically, in terms of the time context, this little phrase is basically the king saying to her, Whatever you want, even half of my, my kingdom. You know, he's, he's displaying the grandeur of his offer towards uh, Queen Esther. He's saying that it's a blank check, really. Whatever you want, you've got it. I'll provide it. It's in my power. I'll give it to you. There's a story told about the, the woman who married her husband, and she said to her friend that after she'd married her husband, he became a millionaire. And her friend replied, well, what was he before it? She said he was a multimillionaire. Somebody got it, somebody didn't. But this is it, this is the blank check. Whatever you want. And Esther responds, verse 4, And Esther answered, If it seems good to the king, or it seemed good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto a banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said to Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be performed. So again, this offer is out there again. And notice what Esther has done strategically. A banquet. And we know the king likes a banquet, right? What else is it? A banquet of wine. <laughs> so what's she doing? She's trying to get him in a, a mood where she can manipulate him. And that's what drink does. It will it'll put you in that place if you give yourself to it where you can't be manipulated. And so you can see the strategy behind it. And again, the king, now he's got people around him. He's got wine in him. And he says, what is it you want, Esther? You can have anything up to the half 
of the kingdom. Let's read verse 7. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition, she's setting them up here, to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will to do tomorrow as the king hath said. So here we get to the kind of appeal that she's made. She's got the king ready and she says to the king, I want to um, request that you and Haman shall come to another banquet that I'm going to uh, do. We're going to have a special banquet that I shall prepare tomorrow and I want you and Haman to come along to it. So if you think about this, you know, why hasn't she gone straight in there and said, right, king, this is it. There's a decree being made that my people, because I'm a Jew, I forgot to mention that in the application form, I'm a Jew, they're my people, you've made a, 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 a law under the Medes and the Persians, that they're all going to be exterminated in a year. I want you to fix that and change that, because that means I'm going to die. But that's not how she approaches it. You see, she'd been called, and Mordecai had said, maybe you've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. And for us, you know, we'd have ticked the boxes here, I'm sure, probably. We'd have said, well, we've consulted God, and she did. And then maybe we'd have ran in. Because here's what we do sometimes. We tick the God box. And we think, oh, I'll not rush into it. I'll pray about it. But actually, we're not praying about it, we're telling God about what we're going to do, asking for his blessing and getting it whether he answers us or not, and then we run and do what we were going to do anyway. So actually the time of prayer to God and with God is not profitable in the actions that we undertake. We use it as a bit of a thing that we say, well, I've prayed about it, tick. Maybe those prayers are one way. Communications to God telling him what we're going to do. Now, I can only speak for myself, but I've been there, done that. And sometimes we feel a little bit special, we feel a little bit holy, or we feel a bit justified in our actions because we've, we've, we've went, danced this dance where it looks like we've involved God, would truly we haven't. What I want to say to you tonight is reading this and reading what Esther's doing and those three days that she spent in fasting and prayer before God, I believe have been absolutely profitable for her as she shook God's face and she went in God's path because she's going about this in a way that maybe to us seems a little bit different than maybe what you would do directly. So what I think is that she's really thought through this. She's used the time wisely, I believe, and that God has revealed to her the timings of these things, directed her as he uses her and works through her. And we're going to see that actually... The timing's not quite right because there's some events that are going to happen in Esther and then we're going to see when the time is exactly right. So God is working in this. He knows what's going on. 
But Esther is, I believe, walking in his will. That this wisdom has come from in high in the time that she spent. Because she hasn't rushed into this. It's very strategic and thought out. And we're going to see that absolutely God is in this. So there's an appeal made. She makes her approach. She's alive. The king has put down the scepter. She makes her appeal. And then verse 9, we're going to see that there's an avoidance. Here we get Haman. So Haman, verse 9, it says, Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. So here we see that Haman has gotten the news that he's been invited to this banquet and he goes forth. You know, he's, he's all full of himself. <laughs> Says he goes forth with <laughs> that day joyful and with a glad heart. And sometimes I feel a little bit sorry for him. Not that sorry for him, but, you know, sometimes you ever, you know, go out the day and you go out with the day, you just, like, today's a good day. Your heart's full of joy. And then things start to change in a heartbeat and a good day becomes a bad day. For Haman, his trigger here, and I want you to, I want you to notice this, his trigger is still Mordecai. I mean, at this point, he's prime minister, second in command. At this point, he's been invited to a special banquet, you know, guest of honor. Things are going good for Haman. But yet, when he sees Mordecai, just this one person, his heart is full of indignation. And we saw this before in Haman and how that had sat and it hasn't left him. And because he hasn't dealt with it, because he hasn't let it go, because he's allowed it in there, and at days he suppressed it, but when he sees Mordecai, he can't help it, but let it overflow. He's full of indignation against Mordecai. It's this deep-seated hatred of Mordecai. He's full of malice now. So this bitterness has grown. It's grown. Remember, the decree's been made. Mordecai's going to be taken care of. The clock is ticking. 12 months, 11 months. And he's out of there, he's gone. You think at this point that Haman could just let it go. But he can't. He can't. Why? Because it's in there. And it's festered. And when you allow these things, this deep-seated hatred of others or situation or circumstance... You let it in there and you don't deal with it. It'll just build and it build and it build. And at times you think you have a handle on it. And then there'll be one trigger. One trigger person. One trigger situation. One trigger environment. And you're right back in the midst of it again. Malice. Full of indignation. This is Haman. Haman. Poisoned inside. 
Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, he compares malice to yeast because yeast, when it gets in, it corrupts, expands. Little leaven leavens the whole lump, is the teaching. I wonder this afternoon, do you have any malice in your heart about someone, about something, somebody said something, somebody's done something, whatever it may be. If you don't take that to the Lord and ultimately take it to the person and deal with it biblically, it will build and it will build and it will build and it will eat you up and destroy you from the inside out. And actually, for the believer, when we do that, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Let me read it to you. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You're holding that in. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. Haman's holding it in. And he had everything. Humanly speaking, he's at the top of the tree. But yet, he's eaten up inside. He's unhappy at the tragic situation that befalls this man where one man won't bow to him. Woe is me. Ruler over thousands. But yet one wouldn't bow And that's all he can think about. It's consumed him. So focused in this one man's avoidance to pay respect, he can think of nothing else. He's got the news, he's guest of honour at the Queen's banquet. He's full of joy and then he sees Haman and it's taken all away in an instant. And there's a lesson here, of course there is for us. It's a good lesson. Wealth, power, prestige, position, don't bring happiness. Haman had this all and he's still obsessed with something else. Forces of evil are working upon Haman. There's no doubt about it. Chuck Misler points out some of the things that are going on with Haman. Number one, the moderate ambition. Number two, intense worship of self. Number three, festering unforgiveness. Number four, greed that had grown with getting. So the more that he got, the more that he wanted. And then number five, an appetite that had increased with feeding. This hatred just keeps being fed. And what does it do? It grows. It grows. And it grows. And it grows. And it grows. This is the nature of man. We're evil. Wicked from within. And if we don't feed ourselves with the right things, the wrong things will grow within our souls so there's an approach there's an appeal there's an avoidance and then verses 10 to 14 15 sorry there's an agreement let's pick up verse 10 chapter 5 it says nevertheless Haman refrained himself and when he came home and sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife and Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him. And how he advanced him above the princes and the servants of the king. 
Haman said, moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and tomorrow I am invited unto her also with the king. So here we go, Haman, feeling sorry for himself, ego bruised, pride bruised, because Mordecai won't bow, goes to the natural self-defense mechanism of those that always need their ego inflated, what do they do? They bring the posse round, the crowd round, and they start to regale their tales of their glory. So that people will say, how good are you, Haman? Haman, you're the best. Haman, there's none like you. Haman talks about, I've been invited to a banquet with the queen, to be before the queen, me and me, and the king alone. Me, 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 me. Common way to heal an injured ego is to boast about yourself to others. And that's what Haman's doing. He tells them all of these great things. And then he gets on as he does. Verse 13. Yet all this availeth me nothing. I mean, listen to that language. All this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So here he is, he brings all his uh, um, cheerleaders in, and he tells them about all how good he is, and then he says, you know, I'm so good, I'm so great, but there's this guy, this one guy, and he is ruining this for me. All this avails nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gates. And what his friends and his family reply? Verse 14. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him. Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Remember, these are cheerleaders. These are yes people. That's why Haman has called them in. Because he wants to hear what he wants to hear. And that is the human heart condition. We always want to hear what we want to hear. If we've got a bright idea, we've got a bright plan, we want to speak to people that we know are going to say, go for it. You deserve it. Or, if there's malice in our heart, and we're struggling with somebody in particular, we'll want to bring cheerleaders in that we know that will stand on our side of the line. Those that uh, maybe take a different position to the person that we are against. Those that maybe have um, difficulties with that person. And what we'll do is we'll bring our wee cheerleaders in and we'll form our little circle and we'll talk about how great we are and how bad that person is. I'll tell you the amount of times that I've seen this in pastoral ministry where people don't come and talk to the pastor about certain things because they know what the pastor will say. So what they do is they go in and get advice from out there 
or anywhere else until they hear what they want to hear so they can do what they want to do. You know, there's wisdom in godly counsel. And sometimes godly counsel hurts, it stings. Sometimes it's not what we want to hear. But if it's truly godly counsel, it's the best thing. The best thing that we can hear. But how often do we do a Haman? Honestly. Go on to somebody that you know is going to tell you what you want to hear. And then going, well, I've prayed about it. Now you've confirmed it. I'm going to do it. I deserve better. I shouldn't be treated like this. I want the promotion. I want the platform, etc., etc., etc. And Haman should be a lesson for us. Because really, if Haman had had godly advice here, things may have turned out a lot differently. I tell you something for nothing, he wouldn't be hanged on the gallows that he made for himself. If he had had godly advice, somebody came along and said, you know what, Haman, this is a bit silly. Look at all you have, and you're consumed by the one thing you don't. But when you bring cheerleaders in, Haman simply gets the advice that he wants. He wants to be rid of Mordecai, and that's what they tell him. Get rid of Mordecai. That's what he set them up for in the conversation. He's built himself up, and then he brought Mordecai down, and the cheerleaders have come in and said, you know what, you need to kill him. And he says, yes, I do. The suggestion's made that he makes a giant gallows, uses influence with the king, and have Mordecai hanged on it the next day. These gallows aren't like the hangman's noose that we see in the, in the Western films. They're literally a spike of wood thrust into the ground in which the victim was impaled, 50 cubits high. Crucifixion, really. This is the first type of crucifixion. Literally impaled on a wooden spike. 50 cubits high, 75 feet, 23 meters. This wasn't any just regular execution. This was so that everybody could see what happens to the person that didn't bow to all powerful Mordecai or Haman? So he's going for it. He's had his pride puffed up. They've said, You should build a, a gallows. You should execute uh, Mordecai. But don't make it just any old regular execution. Make an example of him. Haman's all in. Mordecai is going to be impaled if Haman's plans go to plan before tomorrow's banquet with Esther and the king. But Haman and his big plans didn't trump God's plans. He had an even bigger plan for what was going to go on. So chapter 5 is complete. And actually, it's now not the time for Esther to go all in. The time is not quite right. One more event had to take place before she could truly share her burden with the king. 
And of course, we have to see God's hand in this. Because God is moving. Even though his name's not there. God is moving in these events. That the timing is going to be perfect. Because when it's God's time, it's always the perfect time. Always. Always. How many here tonight can testify to that? Well, you can look back and you can see that something that God has done and at the time you were looking for God to move and he didn't. And then time goes on and he did. And then you look back and you go, that was the perfect time. Perfect time. That's God. You know, time is so important. One commentator said this, the wrong action at the wrong time, disaster. The right action at the wrong time, resistance. The wrong action at the right time, a mistake. Right action, right time, success. So when we depend on God's timing, truly Honestly, openly depend on his timing. Because there are very few people that truly do this. And I include myself in here. Sometimes I am way behind God's timing. Most of the times I'm way ahead of God's timing. And when we truly seek him, seek his face... And want to hear from him. Not just simply tell him our plans and say we've prayed for it and take it off. When we truly seek his face, seek his will, seek his presence, seek his provision in our lives. And we work according to that. That's the perfect time. Right time, right action, success for the believer That's going to God and having a relationship with God that it's clear when God is telling us to move, when God is telling us to stay. We have to have spiritual eyes and ears and hearts for that. And I'm going to be honest, it's not easy because we don't make it easy. Because of our on, off, in, out, walk, and dependence upon God. So therefore it becomes harder for us. To hear when God is clearly telling us to do something. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. We looked at that this morning. And actually there's so many good things that we could be doing. But the, the truth is if it's not God's thing. It's not truly a good thing. And to get to God's thing. We have to be in a relationship with him. Walking with him. Hearing clearly from him. And making the right Decisions at the right time. Esther is making the right decisions at the right time. She's thrown herself at God's feet, cried out unto Him. And God is using her and moving her into the position where the time will be exactly right. But that time is not quite yet. So we leave it there. With another little cliffhanger. Will Mordecai, I feel like this is a little, like a little TV show. Will Mordecai be impaled? Will he survive another day? It's like Batman. Do you remember the old Batmans? I used to love them, honestly. I love them. I mean, every week you're like, Will Batman escape? Yes, he's done it for 50 times. 
Will Mordecai escape? Well, the answer we know if we read on is, is yes. Why? Because God is in this. But the time is not quite yet. But the time is coming where God is going to move in a mighty way. And Haman, for him, things are going to get a lot, lot worse as we pick up next time in God's word. Let's pray.